greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to my channel. My name is John Campia, and this is a companion video for The John Campia Show. Now, what is a companion episode? Well, I'm glad that you asked. See, every day on The John Campia Show, Monday through Friday, we do a live every morning. We take a segment of the show to take your live questions. However, sometimes we don't get enough time to get around to all of the live questions, and sometimes those questions really get backed up. And when they do, I want to make sure we get to your questions that you sent in via those tip links in a timely manner. So I gather up those unused questions, and we address them here on companion videos. So Thank you guys so much for being here and for checking this out here today. And thank you to all of you who did send in those questions. I'm sorry we didn't get around to them on the John Campy Show itself, but we're going to get to them right now. So let's not waste any time and get right into it. We're going to start things off here with a message that came in from Tim Platt, who wrote in, I used to think the idea of Bill and Ted saving the world was ridiculous, but this past year has shown me that they actually could if people would simply be excellent to each other. Hashtag this is the way. Good life philosophy there, Timothy. But I, I will say this, though. I I know a lot of people say they liked the new, the latest Bill and Ted movie that went straight to streaming, played in some theaters. I actually don't think it was all that good. But I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't think it was bad. And the ending, like the last 15 minutes, I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you that it kind of made my heart smile a little bit. It did kind of make my heart smile a little bit. I, I like the ending myself, uh, actually quite a bit. Still, overall, I didn't think the movie was all that good. That said, the movie never does explain, nor did it ever really explain in the earlier films, how exactly does Bill and Ted writing a song actually save the world? And then they come up with this mechanism at the end of the latest movie and the, you know, all of reality is saved, but they never really explain, wait a second, why does everybody singing the song together make the universe come back into alignment? I guess that's not really the important part of the movie, I suppose. It is the baseline idea. Be excellent to each other. So thanks for sending that in, man. All right, next up, uh, we've got uh, Casey McNatt who writes, Hey, John, here's my thought. Halloween is tomorrow. So this was obviously sent in just a couple of days ago. And this movie was supposed to come out this year. So I feel they wanted to give us a treat of what's to come. I mean, it is Halloween after all. Uh, I don't expect a full trailer now until June or July. Okay, so what Casey's referring to here is that the other day, Halloween Kills, the, the newest Halloween movie, a follow-up to the one that came out uh, last year which I really liked. First Halloween movie I've ever actually really liked was this latest one. So it's not coming out until October of 2021. They dropped a short trailer. I guess you could sort of call it a teaser the other day. Now, I kind of struggled with this in two directions. On the one hand, my thought is, what was the point of putting out that trailer right now? Putting out that trailer now is not going to equal one extra dollar made at the box office when the movie comes out in a year right? So on the one hand, I was kind of like, what was the point of putting that out? I mean, but on the other hand, it's not like they bought television time to put it out. So, and they didn't put it in theaters, obviously. So, I mean, it really didn't cost them anything to put it out. So why not? But really at the end of the day, Casey, what, what you're saying is really what makes sense because Rob brought it up too. It's that, you know, maybe the studio just knows a lot of people are looking forward to the new Halloween movie. And in this insufferable year of crap that 2020 has been, why not drop something just to put a smile on everybody's face? And I'll tell you what, when Rob kind of put it that way, I was like, you know what? Yeah, because it did put a smile on my face. 
I mean, the trailer is pointless at this point, this far out and this early, but it put a smile on my face. I enjoyed watching it. And for that, I am grateful that they put it out. And maybe that was the point the whole time, right? Maybe that was the point. You know what? There's nothing to be gained for us here by putting this trailer out now, but there's nothing to lose. And it's just a little sum that makes people feel good. Let's put it out. You know what? If that's the case, good on them. And I love that they did that. All right, let's move on here. Next up is Ryan Lohner, who writes, uh, Timothy Oliphant's just doing his Seth Bullock slash uh, Ryland Given slash defi- uh, uh, defy routine again. But you won't hear me complaining because it's darn a darn good routine. So obviously what Ryan's talking about, for those of you who haven't seen Mandalorian season two, episode one yet, uh, Timothy Oliphant is the featured guest star this week. The name of the episode of this premiere episode was The Marshal. The Marshal is what it was called. And Timothy Oliphant plays that Marshal. Is Timothy Oliphant basically seeing a character we've seen him play several times already? Oh, yes. Yes, he is. And I have no problem with it. You know, there's there's actually something. You don't want to stereotype an actor or anything like that. But there's something to be said, I think, about, you know what? In a movie like this, that's supposed to just ooze old, gritty, frontier, Western kind of movies. Why not go out and get a guy who we are clearly very happy with and very comfortable with seeing in that sort of a role? Why not do that for a show like this? And by the way, I thought Timothy Oliphant was great in it. I thought he was fantastic in it. And so I agree with you, Ryan. It was a little on the nose from what we're used to seeing from him. But hell, why not? It's it's something we really enjoyed, and I certainly enjoyed a minute. All right, next up, we've got Russell Amador who writes, Hey, John, hell of a first episode of The Mandalorian. It absolutely was. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Can't wait for more to come. With that being said, did you see the release schedule? It looks like it concludes on December 18th. Is it fair to say uh, it's looking more likely for WandaVision to debut on Christmas? Yes. Yes, it is. Look. One of my biggest complaints, and you all know I'm a big Disney fan. I, I like Disney stuff, whether it's Pixar or Marvel or Star Wars or Disney proper, whatever. I'm a, I'm a Disney fan. I am. But I've more and more over the, as the months have passed, I've become more and more critical of, of how they've handled Disney Plus. And it really started from the beginning. You know, they launched big with Mandalorian. But it wasn't long after that that we realized, okay, Mandalorian's done. Great. What's next? Shop class? Now, they also had The World According to Jeff Goldblum, which I really, really liked. But that's a little – that's a smaller niche show. They had nothing that was a big marquee kind of show ready to go for after Mandalorian was done. And to me, it's a little bit unforgivable. It's not like they just decided to do Disney Plus six weeks before they launched. They built up and prepared for the launch of Disney Plus for years. And I'm sorry, but it is relatively inexcusable that they had nothing else ready to go. Now, I get it. They have an incredible library. I'm not, I've never taken that away from them. Disney Plus has a great library. Absolutely. But. You know, one of the big things that is attracting people to sign up for the service is, you know, all these promises of these great new shows. And they did Mandalorian and then they had nothing and nothing. This year is going to be different. This year, they're going to run Mandalorian. Mandalorian's going to wrap up. And then, hello, everybody. 
it's one division. Now, how long we have to wait between one division and whenever, you know, Falcon and Winter Soldier comes out, I don't know at this point. But yes, I I feel like it is pretty much looking like the writing's on the wall. We're going to get a Christmas launch of WandaVision, and I'm excited for it. And I think it's a great move on Disney Plus's part. But they got to get to the point where we're not waiting months for a new marquee title to come out. That can't be the way. I'm not trying to quote Mandalorian there, but that can't be the way you do it. Not when Netflix is literally putting out five pieces of new original content every freaking day. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, so there's that. That's just my thought on that, Russell. But yes, I do believe we're going to get that uh, WandaVision thing fairly quickly after Mandalorian is done. All right. An anonymous viewer writes. Now, before we all lose our collective Bantha Pudu, uh, let's just remember that there are quite literally millions of guys running around the Star Wars galaxy with that face. I have so so obviously you're talking about Morrison. We see Morrison pop up uh, the actor who played Aquaman's dad in Jason Momoa's Aquaman. And of course, he was Jango Fett and he's the clones and he's Boba Fett. And of course, at the end, by now, look, if you haven't seen the first episode of Mandalorian season one by now or uh, season two, episode one by now, then you're clearly not all that interested in it. So a little bit of a spoiler here. But last shot, we see the camera pan, the back of a character turns around. It's Morrison. It's Boba Fett. Now, we pointed out on my own show that, listen, there are other people with that face in the galaxy, right? There were Uh, There was a clone army of millions that have that exact same face. However, and not that this is the beyond end all, not that it absolutely proves it. When you go over to IMDb, it lists him, Morrison, in the show, and it lists him specifically as Boba Fett, right? It lists him as that. Now, that's not 100% key lock, but I I think that's obviously what was implied Listen, could Disney Plus full of pass? Uh, could uh, Disney Plus and John Favreau pull a fast one on us and have it be that he's, I don't know, one of the clones, maybe one of the ones that we know from one of the animated shows? It's possible. It's possible, but I really do think they were pointing us toward Boba Fett. So I'm, I kind of believe right now that that is indeed what we were getting. All right, let's move on now. Next up, uh, Ray Reyes writes, "Hi, John." Do you think the way things are going with COVID that probably movie theaters could be gone? Companies like Netflix, Amazon, Apple could open their own movie theater chains uh, to expand their services in the future. Keep up the good work. Hi to Robert. Uh, We've talked about this a bunch of times, Ray. I mean, look, regarding the survival of the movie theaters, I believe that if the movie theaters can stay alive, you know, quoting Daniel Day-Lewis from uh, Last of the Mohicans, stay alive. If the movie theaters can stay alive until that point where everything's opening back up again and the movies are starting to flow into theaters again, if they can survive until that point, I completely believe the movie theaters will be fine. I really do. There are others who don't believe that, and that's fine. They're allowed to be wrong. I believe if they can survive until that point, they will be fine. They still have some rocky roads ahead. They have a, they're going to have a big hole they need to dig themselves out of, but they'll be fine. But that's a big if, if they can survive until that point. And I ain't so sure that they can survive until that point, right? Be that as it may, if they don't, does that then open the doors for Netflix and Amazon, whatever, to open up their own theater chains? Or even in the shorter term than that, 
are things ripe that a Warner Brothers could step in and buy AMC theaters or, you know, Paramount could step in and buy Regal theaters? Could we see the studios getting involved in theater ownership? That used to be illegal. But with the Paramount decrees is what a set of laws was known as have been wiped away earlier this year. The doors are now open that studios, if they want, can own movie theaters. Is the door open for them to do that? Yes. Do I think that's what's going to happen? No, no, I don't. And there's a big reason why. The big reason I don't think it's going to happen is I don't believe the studios have any desire to get into movie theater ownership. Now, I'm not talking about the odd novelty theater, right? Like take in Hollywood, there's a iconic movie theater, the El Capitan Theater, which is right across the street, literally right across the street from uh, the Dolby Theater, which is where the Academy Awards are held every year. And right across the street from that Dolby Theater um, is the El Capitan that's owned by Disney. I can totally see like Amazon and Netflix having their own theater in New York and maybe one in LA and blah, blah, blah. But do I see any of these studios owning a thousand theater chain across the country. I don't. And there's two reasons for that. Number one, that is a preposterously expensive endeavor. It's a preposterously expensive endeavor. But number two is getting involved in preposterously expensive endeavors is great if there's a huge payoff for it, if there's a potential huge payoff. The studios know that movie theaters get screwed. The studios know how bad it is and how hard it is for the movie theaters to make money. It is a razor thin margin business, right? And you've got companies like AMC that have been doing it for a hundred years. And even for them, it's a razor thin margin business. Incredible amounts of work to make razor thin margins. The studios know that they have been taking advantage of the theaters for decades they know that they have it much better than the theaters do. And that's why I don't believe they have any there. They desperately want the movie theaters there, but they don't want to be the ones to own it and be financially responsible for them and take on all the effort and labor and, and everything that goes into making those things happen and run. It's a different story altogether. Now I was all for something like an Amazon coming along and buying AMC. Then you don't even have to change the AMC name. Just keep calling it AMC, but now it stands for uh, Amazon movie cinemas there. You still get to keep the name, but they have so much money that it's ungodly. But, but listen, Jeff Bezos isn't about getting involved in endeavors that aren't going to turn him or give him at least the reasonable potential of a decent sized profit if he does it right. And I just don't think movie theaters are it. I'm not writing it off as an impossibility, but I don't personally uh, right now, think it's something that is a likelihood. Possible? Yes, especially with a company like Amazon. Amazon is more likely, I think, than any of those other places. But I still don't think it's likely. I think it would be a good move. I mean, for as a movie fan, it would be great if a company with the deep pockets like Amazon could come in and buy like an AMC theaters. It would ensure the ongoing future of the movie going experience. It would get a brand new influx of money. It would be great. I would love it. As a film fan, I would love it. But do I think it's actually going to happen? Uh, I don't. But hey, you never know. You never know. All right, let's keep going now. Next one up. Mark Newman writes, one of two. 
saw the songbird trailer. That was interesting, wasn't it? Saw the songbird trailer. And I thought, um, is this the beginning of a new tidal wave of dour pandemic themed movies slash TV? Normally, I'd be down, but honestly, man, after having lived this crap for almost a year, I want some optimistic escapism for a bit. Uh, Part two, maybe overall public feels the same. I'd expect maybe, given it a couple of years, a little distance from the thick of this strife and then visit it. I'd imagine it'd make more, or am I wrong, and they want to hit while it's all over the news. All right, interesting question. So for those of you who don't know what he's talking about, there's a trailer right out there right now with, um, oh, what's her name from Daddario? I think that's her name, who was in Baywatch. Anyway, there's a trailer came out just recently for this new movie, Songbird, where it imagines the world is in the grip of, it's a little bit in the future, and it's gripped in a pandemic of what's called COVID-23. Not COVID-19, but a totally different thing called COVID-23, right? And how truly bad it is and how what it's done to society and blah, blah, blah. And it's very grim and bleak. Is this something that they should put off and wait to do for a couple of years? Or is it a good idea to release something like this now? I think there's arguments to be made on both sides. Honestly, though, if I was a studio executive, if I was a distribution executive, I think I would want it in theaters now. Listen. Movies are stories, right? And all stories are told within a certain context. And depending on the context you're in, it'll have a greater or lesser impact, right? And there are certain movies that weigh more heavily into that principle and others that do so less. For instance, you go and watch a movie like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner with Sidney Poitier. Watching it today for the first time, you and I will just not get it. I mean, we can still enjoy it and we understand the themes. We do. You and I will understand the themes. But that movie for a lot of us, not all of us who are watching the show, but for a lot of us, that movie's before our time. And that movie came out in an era when the concept of a white woman bringing, surprising her affluent white family home with her fiance who is a black man, I mean, in that was a story told within the framework of the societal context in which it was birthed, right? And you and I, like I heard, I, I can't remember which film critic it was. I heard one film critic talking about it, and I completely agree with him. Like you and I can watch it after the fact, and I did. I watched it well after the fact, and it's great, but I'll never get the full impact because I didn't watch it within that time frame in that context. Movies are meant to be experiential events, right? We watch these movies to have an experience. And there's something to be said about watching a movie like this within the context that we're having, and it can heighten the experience that we have with it. Maybe it'll be very visceral. Maybe it will be a dour, whatever. But there's something to be said for that. And so while I see a lot of good arguments for waiting a couple of years, there are some very good arguments for that. I just got to admit, if I was a distribution executive, I would say, hey, let's put it out now. 
Because now is when we're all thinking about this. Now is when this sort of thing may impact us deeper. And from a financial point of view, now is when this is the topic of conversation on everybody's lips. It'll probably get more attention now. So you take the business into it. You take the artistic aspect of it. You take the experiential aspect of it. And and I think I would go with releasing it now. You raise some really good points there. Absolutely, you do. But I think if it was me, I'd probably go with releasing it now. Anyway, great question, though. Great topic. All right, let's move on now. Next up, we've got Greg Scott Bailey who writes, John, I did it. Spent most of the year saving up money. And then this summer, I ordered a Thanos and Hulkbuster hot toy. It's too bad Rob's not here. Rob would be proud of you. Uh, and then as I type this message, thanks to Rob, I now have a Pepper Potts rescue. Uh, it's too late for me. Go on without me. LOL. Listen, Greg, I, I am both feel bad for you and I'm incredibly envious of you. Now, a lot of people ask me, John, why do you have four hot toys? Right? Because I have four. Uh, which ones do I have? I have the Jorel, I have the Alien, I have a Boba Fett, and I have what's my fourth one? I can't even remember what my fourth one is. Anyway, I've, I've got four of them. The reason I have four is because I can't afford to have fifty. It is an addictive, addictive habit to get into. Now, look, I I have hundreds of pops right? You see the pops behind me, right? I have hundreds of them. And I used to have none until one day, my brother-in-law Ray came back to the office. And I think him and Dennis and, and fact checker Jonathan had gone over to, you know, the mall and there's a store in there that sells hot toys. And, but every week they would buy a couple. My brother-in-law came back with a gift for me and he had bought me the two hot toys of Sam and Dean Winchester from Supernatural. And I loved them. I'd never bought Pops. I didn't want to. But as soon as I got them, I thought, you know what? Wouldn't a Castiel look pretty good beside that? So I bought a Castiel one. Then I'm like, well, if I'm going to have a couple of Pops, I need to have some Star Wars Pops. So then I go and buy five or six Star Wars ones. And then I'm like, ooh, look at that Captain America Pop. And I bought the Captain America. And before you knew it, I had hundreds. Now, Pops are a little more forgiving because they cost like 10 bucks a shot, right? They cost 10, $12 a pop, depending on the size. Like I've got, uh, let me see if I can get it here. Hold on a second. I've got this one. I believe, I believe this is amongst the biggest ones they make. I've got, I was at Disneyland one day and I saw them have this special edition Disneyland exclusive Indiana Jones with the, look at the size of this thing with the idol in his hand, right? That, those of you listening to the podcast version, you, you can't obviously can't see what I, but trust me, it's great. Um, I think that was like 50 bucks and I splurged on it because I mean, look at it. It's gorgeous. So I splurged like 50 bucks on that. But for the most part, the pops, they're, they're pretty forgiving, right? Because they're not that expensive. But man, the, the hot toys, you're talking anywhere between two to 350 bucks or more per shot. And they're gorgeous and beautiful. And if you're not, I remember after I bought the fourth one, I'm like, I can't let myself buy any more of these because I'll just keep buying them. And for some people, that's awesome. And I'm envious, but I know I can't afford that. So <laughs> I've, I made the decision. It's like, huh, do I buy the new lenses for the cameras that I need? Or do I buy a couple more hot toys? I mean, and you know, I, so I had to put my priority in, in putting money into the show. 
but ooh, it's tempting. And man, the three you mentioned, Greg, what do you t- think? You, what do you say you got? You got the uh, Hulkbuster, which is great. Uh, the Thanos and the Pepper Rescue. I, those are all three I would love to have, but I can't spend that kind of money. I'm glad that you saved up and you were able to get that. And I hope you enjoy them, man. I really do. All right. And like I said, Rob would be totally proud right now. Why did that come up? I'm not sure. Uh, let's see here. Uh, where are we at? We are at Palestinian Surprise writes. Hey, John and Rob. Rob's not here today. Uh, My two favorite YouTube creators. Much respect. Thank you so much. Question for both. Uh, Were there ever any years where you didn't particularly like the Oscar Best Picture winning film? Uh, Which film or films? Uh, Question for Rob. Are there any comics that depict Arabian culture? Well, Rob's not here right now, unfortunately, for that uh, surprise. Um, Well, listen, we all have years where... The, the film that wins Best Picture isn't necessarily the, the one we would have picked to win. But are there years? Well, let me let me bring this up. Hold on a second. Are there like Best Picture winners that I didn't even like? Okay, hold on a second. Well, let, let's take a look at this. Let me see if I can bring this up here. Um, all right, let's let's go through some of these. Parasite loved Parasite. I know. Now again, remember there might there are going to be a couple on this list that maybe I would have picked another film to win. But what you're asking are there best picture winners that I didn't even particularly like them. Parasite loved it. Green Book loved it. Shape of Water loved it. Moonlight loved it. Spotlight loved it. Birdman in 2015 loved it. 2014 Twelve Years a Slave loved it. 2013 Ben Affleck's Argo loved it. Um, let's move on here. What else we got? Um, we've got 2008s. Did I skip a couple? I think I skipped a couple. Hold on. Let me see if I can get this back on screen. I'm not sure if I can. Um, okay. 2012, The Artist. Love The Artist. 2011, The King's Speech. One of my favorite films of the past couple of decades is The King's Speech. Uh, 2010, The Hurt Locker. Love it. 2009, Slumdog Millionaire. Love it. Don't care what anybody else says. Uh, 2008, No Country for Old Men. Love it. Uh, 2007, The Departed. Love it. 2006, Crash. There are some people that didn't like Crash. I actually really did. I I thought it was a very poignant, well-made film. Would it have been my pick to win Best Picture? That's debatable. But I really like that, so I'm going to say yes. 2005, Clint Eastwood movie, Million Dollar Baby. Absolutely love it. 2004, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Love it. Ah, here we go. 2003, Chicago. Even though I like musicals, I gotta say Chicago. I I wouldn't say I really like that one. I don't really. And and there are musicals I love, like Moulin Rouge is in my top 20 favorite films of all time, but Chicago never really worked for me. So I'll say there's one out of what are we at? 17 years so far. We've got one. Let's keep going just for a few more years. Uh, 2002, A Beautiful Mind. I loved it. 2001, Gladiator. I loved it. That was two Russell Crowe films back to back that won Best Picture of the Year. Uh, 2000, American Beauty. Loved it. 1999, Shakespeare in Love. That's another one where a lot of people didn't like it, but I did. I thought it was great. Uh, 1998, Titanic. 1997, English Patient. Love both those movies. Uh, Let's see here. 1996, Mel Gibson's Braveheart. 
obviously love it. 95, Gump, love it. Number 94, Schindler's List, love it. 93, Unforgiven, best Western of all time in my idea, in my mind. 1992, Science of the Lambs, love it. 1991, Dances with Wolves, love it. 1990, Driving Miss Daisy, love it. And now we're 30 years in. So interestingly enough, I would say the only one for me out of the last 30 years that I would say I didn't particularly even like that film would probably be Chicago. Now, there's going to be a bunch that say Crash, and there's going to be a bunch that say uh, Shakespeare in Love. I think that more has to do with Shakespeare in Love one, I think, has more to do with people were just sore that Saving Private Ryan didn't win that year. And Saving Private Ryan was, I think that's the same year. I think that's the year Saving Private Ryan. I think Saving Private Ryan and Crash came out in the same year. Anyway. But for me, the one on that list would be Chicago. Thanks for writing that in, man. Okay, let's move on here. That was Palestinian Surprise. Next up, uh, Anonymous writes, Hey, John, choose only one. A date with Jennifer Garner, Christopher Nolan making a rom-com, or a Sony A7S III choose wisely. Okay, we'll take the Christopher Nolan rom-com one out. Don't get me wrong. I would love to see Christopher Nolan step out of his regular sandbox and try doing something a little bit different. And a, a rom-com is something I'd love to see him try to do. But I mean, that I mean, that's something I'd like to see. It's not I'm dying to see it. <gasps> OK, for those of you who didn't see the other day, Sony just put out a new camera that I've been drooling over. I've watched about 40 different videos on YouTube about it. I've been drooling over this new Canon or this new uh, camera, the Sony, not Canon, Sony A7S Mark III, the A7S III. It's without a lens. It's like $3,500 for this camera without a lens. You're at, you're looking at probably you want at least one prime prime lens and one zoom lens. So you're probably looking at close to another $1,500 to $2,000 for a couple of lenses. <laughs> oh, it's so expensive. I can't bring myself to it uh, to do it. So I would love that. But I'd be lying to you if I didn't say a date with Jennifer Garner. Mm. You might be saying, John, what about Aunt? Well, I mean, I mean <laughs> Obviously, Anne, but um, uh, Jennifer Anne knows Jennifer Garner has been my celeb crush like for decades, ever since Alias. I think Jennifer Garner is like the perfect woman. I mean, the perfect. Let me rephrase that. The perfect Hollywood star. I just think she is the perfect Hollywood star in everything. First of all, I think she's a tremendous actress. She can do action and comedy and drama. She can do it all. But. Uh, especially great with action. She just recently did an action film that I thought was fantastic. But she also has always comes across as very grounded, very real. Uh, I've just always loved Jennifer Garner. And if every marriage has its uh, hall pass, Anne knows Jennifer Garner would be mine. Justin Timberlake would probably be Anne's. Justin Timberlake would probably be Anne's. But as far as that goes with Jennifer Garner, I think if Jennifer Garner, if I had an offer, if Jennifer Garner's agent wrote to me and said, hey, Jennifer heard about how much you're a big fan of hers and she's like your celeb crush she'd like to invite you to a dinner and have have dinner with her i would move heaven and i think Anne would leave me if i didn't go and have that dinner i think Anne would totally leave me if i didn't go and have that dinner so one time dinner date with jennifer garner i would take that over sony a7s3 yep i'd even take that just one casual dinner date with jennifer garner i'd take that in a heartbeat like I said, she's, we all have our celeb crushes, but she's been mine for a long, long time. I think I'm getting rosy in the cheeks just talking about it. Anyway, I'd probably go for that one. Thanks for that. Okay, next up. Uh, again, wrong one comes up. Uh, next up, we go to, uh, that was anonymous. Next one we have, 
Uh, Another anonymous writes, one of two. A lot of former AMC Collider era people are copying you and doing the solo YouTube thing. Well, let's not pretend like I created the solo YouTube thing. (laughs) Let's let's be clear about that. Uh, Anyway, uh, Makuga, Roxy, Outlaw, Team Action, Ken, and a bunch of others uh, not totally connected with the AMC days. Even Christian Harloff. By the way, I've seen this happen a lot. Just so everybody knows, Christian uh, you did spell Christian right, but Christian Harloff, his name is spelled with a K, just just so you know. Anyway, uh, even Christian Harloff has his SEN with a ton of people that we know, um, two of two, and none of them even get one third of your ratings or one twentieth. Why can't they achieve your success? What's the difference? Is it talent over saturation? All right. Thanks a lot uh, for writing that in. I think there's a couple of things you have to keep in mind because, yeah, unfortunately, the old AMC days are gone. Um, even what they kind of then transitioned into the collider days, the old collider days are gone. I mean, that's done. Uh, I have expressed my opinions about how they shouldn't have disappeared and why they disappeared, but this is neither the time nor place to talk about that. It's true that in the aftermath, you know, after I left and decided to go solo, Uh, In the aftermath of the collapse of AMC and and Collider, um, a lot of the people who were either directly involved with it or in a satellite way, sort of connected to it in some way, have done what I did and have branched out and decided to do their own thing solo. Uh, Some trying to do the live streaming like I do and, and all those sorts of things. And it's not incorrect to say that not a lot of them are having a lot of success, but success is a, is, that's a relative term. What is your definition of success? To some people, getting 20 people to watch a live stream is huge. That's huge. To some people, maybe 2,000 is nothing, right? So it, the, the term success is relative. But why haven't we been able to see uh, some really talented, not all of them are super talented, but some of them very much are. Um, I'm just going to be real with you. I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. I'll be real with you. So why have they not? I think there's a couple things to keep in mind. Thing to keep in mind, number one, is that just like a lot of movie fans just think making a movie, making a good movie is easy. Like there are a lot of movie fans that just, how hard can it be to make a good comic? It's hard. It's really damn hard to make a good movie, to make a people that to make a movie that people like is really damn hard. But I find a lot of people carry that same attitude over with YouTube. Like, how hard is it to get a thousand views on YouTube? It's hard. It's really hard. And for every one person that does it, there's 10,000 that tried and failed. And there's an aspect of luck to it and, and all that kind of stuff. So element number one is that. Just because you start up a YouTube channel, a lot of people just think that, oh, you do the YouTube channel and you get, you know, you know you'll get, you'll get 10,000 views in your first month. It's really, some do, some do, it happens, but it's really, really hard. And that's the exception. I think element number two, you got to keep in mind is that specifically talking about these people that you're referring to, like this whole 
uh, big collage of people who were either directly or indirectly kind of associated with what was going on during the AMC or Collider era doing stuff. You got to understand that for a lot of them, not all of them, and it doesn't have to be this way, but for a lot of them, including me, they do um, movie centric stuff. And I don't know why I've had this, uh, this camera angle up for a while. They do, um, they do movie centric stuff, right? And the last eight months, 2020 has been a year where basically the movie industry took uh, a hibernation. They went in, the movie industry basically went into hibernation for like eight months. What happened to ESPN when there was no sports? ESPN had to go months with no sports. You think a lot of people watched ESPN when there were no sports? Nope. I watch ESPN multiple times daily and I went months without watching ESPN, right? So you got to understand, number one, it's incredibly difficult to gain traction on YouTube. It's a very, very hard thing to do. Number two, you got to understand that a lot of these people, they kind of travel in movie-centric circles and they try to do other things as well, but they're movie-centric things. And for the last, for this year, there's been no movies for the most part. There's basically been no movies. The world where three brand new Hollywood films get released in theaters every week, that's been gone. I mean, my ch- I mean, look, I, I was getting three, four thousand new subscribers a month, but but in this year, like I've I've maybe this entire year gotten like two thousand new subscribers. Like even my growth had like my growth, there's basically been no growth this year. And it's just been a fight to really keep where things are when you go eight months with no new big movies coming out, right? It's hard. So when you're thinking about before you get judgmental, and I'm not saying you're trying to be judgmental, but I'm just saying before passing judgment on any of these other people who are trying to get things up and running and establish something, the the environment has not been good and it's been very, very difficult. It would have been very, very difficult to get something up and running and all that kind of stuff. So you need to take that in consideration as well, right? And let's see how these folks do when things get back to normal, however long from now that's going to be and whatever normal looks like. But whenever we get back to whatever normal is, then let's see how they do, right? I, I think it's unfair to, to try to give an evaluation or, or whatever when they're trying to get things going in this sort of an environment. With Christian and what Christian is doing with SEN, there's another layer of complication. I've always believed this. The bigger you try, the bigger the thing is you're trying to build, the longer it takes to develop the foundation, right? The longest part of building a house is actually a foundation. And it's funny too, like if you ever walk by a construction site, it'll look like for a year, nothing is happening. Right. It just looks like if you just look at a construction site and, and just look, there's a fence around it and you see some some bulldozers or something behind the fence. But really it looks like nothing's happening for a year. And then all of a sudden, boom, a full building is there. That's because building the foundation takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy and effort. And the bigger the building is you're trying to build, the longer that process is going to take. What Christian is trying to build uh, with SEN is beyond a simple YouTube channel. Um, Christian really has grand, a grand vision for SEN, a very big and grand vision. And to accomplish that, it's going to take a while for him 
to really lay the foundations. And on top of that, there have been no movies. And on top of that, Schmodown live events have had been canceled. They had to go virtual. And on top of that, and on top of that, and on top of that. So, I mean, he's been facing a very, like everybody else, a very up, difficult uphill battle. Plus, he's got very, very grand aspirations. So it's going to take him a while to lay that groundwork. Now, I said I wasn't going to sugarcoat things. I will also say this, and I'm not here to throw anybody under the bus. I'm not here to name names. And this goes beyond just the people in these movie spheres. I, I think this applies to a lot of YouTubers in general. A lot of people are trying to get up and running on YouTube and trying to do things on YouTube. But this also does apply to some people in this movie sphere as well, as to why I think some of them aren't getting growth. You got to understand the current cultural context. There's been no movies. It's difficult to get a channel going, all that kind of stuff. But I believe there's also another element. I believe that like any relationship in your life, you are constantly communicating to the other person or people in that relationship how valuable and how important that relationship is to you. Whether it's a work relationship, whether it's a friendship, whether it's a family relationship, whether it's a romantic relationship, whatever, you are always, knowingly or unknowingly, communicating to the other parties involved in that relationship how important that relationship is to you. So, like the other day, um, Anne still plays Animal Crossing every day. Anne is on her Nintendo Switch every day playing Animal Crossing. I came across this adorable sweater of one of the characters from Animal Crossing in a Starbucks-like cup, but it's got like an Animal Crossing logo on it. It's an adorable sweater. I ordered it for her, surprised her with it the other day. I'm just, every day, you are communicating to somebody. And that was just my little way of communicating to her. You are the most important thing in the world to me. I think about you all the time. And, and just, we're constantly communicating to each other, Right? Whether it's a romantic relationship, friendship, whatever. You, do you have a friend? Do you have a friendship with somebody and you never get together with them? You never think to email them. You never think to text them. You never think to call them. You never think to acknowledge their birthday. Well, guess what? You're communicating how important or not important that relationship is to you. John, what does this have to do with YouTube? Well, I'll tell you. I think as a YouTuber and your audience, I believe there is a relationship there. There's a relationship between you as a YouTuber and those people who watch your stuff, your audience. I believe there is a relationship there. And I believe in that relationship, just like any other relationship, you as a YouTuber are communicating, whether you know it or not, to your audience how important that relationship is to you. Well, how, how does YouTube communicate to their audience how important that relationship is? I'll tell you. The audience can tell how important your relationship with them is by the amount of effort you put into what you are presenting them. I really believe that. And I believe there are a lot of YouTubers that you can just tell put no effort into what it is they put up on YouTube. And I'm not talking about how much money you spend. I'm not talking about any of that. I am just simply talking about even some of the people in those AMC Collider Spheres. Some of them do a great job communicating that 
that relationship is important, but some of them don't. And you can simply tell they put no effort into it. Like some people think, oh, oh, yeah, just uh, connect to YouTube, turn on a webcam and just start talking. Yeah, yeah, that's all I got to do. You're so you're putting no effort into it. And I believe a thousand percent that audiences can tell when that relationship you have with them doesn't mean much to you. I really believe the audience can tell that. I really do. And again, I'm not talking about how much money you spend to put something together. Like, for instance, if if you work, you know, a nine to five um, at, I, I don't know, let's say, let's say you're an assistant manager at a fast food restaurant, whatever, you work a hard nine to five and you make X amount of money, your significant other isn't expecting you to come home with a 40 diamond tele, uh, tennis bracelet for them that's worth $50,000. They're not expecting you to do that. But hey, you know what? If you only make this amount of money in your life and you come home with like a $30 bouquet of flowers sometime, that means the world. I'm not saying YouTubers need to go out and buy a $1,000 camera and you have to get a rent space that so you can have a proper studio set up. No, 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 no. But let's say you got no money. That's fine. Then put some effort into what you're doing. Script out. Not, not a direct line for line script, but, but do some work, script out an outline about what it is you want to talk about on that particular video. Do some research, put in some points, maybe don't have any money for a new microphone, but show the audience that you're putting in some energy and effort to make that mic sound as good as it can so that their viewing experience can be just a little bit better. Maybe you can't afford a new $700 camera and all you've got is like an $80 web camera. Okay. Put a little bit of effort when you're doing a YouTube video, go and pull a lamp out of your living room or whatever and set it up, do some experimenting, set it up in such a way that you have a little bit better lighting for your shot and it shows and it communicates to the audience. Hey audience, my relationship with you is important enough that I'm putting in this extra energy and effort for the video that I'm presenting to you because an audience can tell when you care about your relationship with them. And if you have a little bit more money, well, guess what? Maybe spend that little bit more money on that relationship you have with your audience. And maybe if you can afford a hundred dollar microphone, well, maybe instead of buying, you know, a second Xbox for your bedroom to go along with the one you have in your living room, maybe spend a little bit of that money on that relationship with your audience and buy a little bit better of a microphone. And that says to your audience, your relationship with me and my relationship with you is important enough that I'm going to spend a little bit of money on giving you just a little bit better audio so your experience is a little bit better because this relationship means a lot to me. And then if you have more money later, then maybe upgrade your cameras or buy some lights or get higher internet speeds to make a better connection to you, whatever it is. If you have no money, put in effort with no money. If you have a little bit of money, put in some effort with a little bit of money. I'm starting to go on a big rant here, I know. But I just, I'm always flabbergasted when I look at some talented people online who clearly put no effort into the videos they're doing and just expect an audience to show up because they are who they are. Doesn't work. Long term, it doesn't work. There may be some flukes where it does with certain people. There are certain people I know who are very successful on YouTube that clearly don't put a lot of effort into it, but that's the exception. That's the exception. And 
So yeah, I think for the most part, the reason you don't see some of these folks getting like a lot of audiences right now is absolutely because of circumstances. There's been no movies for a year, practically. Uh, it's difficult to get YouTube channels up and running. You got to fight to find the time to do it properly and all that kind of stuff. Those are the main culprits. But I also believe there are, there are some YouTubers out there in that movie sphere and outside of that movie sphere where they just think it's just turn on the web camera hit stream and just just wing it and people will love it. I don't know, man. I, I just think if you constantly communicate to your audience that they aren't worth your effort, then eventually they're going to start thinking you're not worth their effort. And there's a reason I put six to eight hours of prep time into every episode of the John Campia show. Because I, I believe I owe it to the people who spend time in their day and our show to give them the best I can give them. And maybe some days the best I give them isn't all that good, but my audience always know I am giving them my best effort. Some days that'll be great results. Some days it won't be all that great results, but my audience always knows I'm giving them my best effort. And I believe that goes a long way. I believe that goes a long way. So anyway, that was a very, very long answer for a relatively simple question. So I, sorry, I went on so long with that, but I, I, I think it's relevant. I think it's a relevant thing. Anyway, let's move on here. Next up, Oli from Norway, who tipped in $20. Thank you, Oli from Norway, for tipping in $20 and supporting the channel on that level. Uh, should actors slash actresses do more to push for movies to be released to cinemas? After all, one of the consequences of cinemas uh, going out of business and movies going directly to streaming is that salaries will go down. You're not wrong. One of the first casualties of if like movie theaters disappear and it's just all streaming, the amount of revenue is going to drop massively. And that means long term actor salaries are going to drop like crazy. You're not wrong about that. However, here's the thing. I don't know that and forgive me as i open a can of zevia here um i don't know that it's the best idea in the world for actors to get involved in that discussion mainly because i think with actors because of what you pointed out Oli, with actors it's a very self-serving message right for coming from actors even if it's true coming from actors it's just going to come across as a very self-serving thing Oh, they only want the movie theaters there because they know actor salaries will stay higher if that's where movies go. And therefore, I think it will negate, if not outright destroy, any credibility their message will have. So for the most part, hey, if an actor wants to say something, fine, but should they really go out of the way to speak to this issue? Probably not because of the perception. Now, when a theater chains come out and say, look, this is about Survivor. This is about an industry surviving. This is about maintaining, you know, cultural traditions and cultural institutions. The idea of going to dinner and a movie and blah, blah. It's about the art. And it's about, that's one thing. And that's why I think they should speak very loud, loudly to this. But for individual actors too, I don't know. I, I, I would kind of think it might be best if they stay out of it. But uh, I don't know. It's Maybe there's something to be said there that I'm not considering. It's a good thought. It's a good topic to bring up, Oli. Thanks for sending that in, man. All right, next up, uh, Bill Heath writes, Hi, Giovanni. I would like your thoughts on the film, The Social Dilemma. Is it worth watching? Yeah, I finally got around. I was a little bit late to the party. I finally got around to watching that documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. 
about social media today and the harm that social media is doing. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. I loved it. It's also terrifying, uh, but I would highly recommend it. I have one issue with the movie. Okay. I have one issue with the movie. They do something not a lot of documentaries do in that it's a documentary, but then they intercut the documentary with this scripted um, narrative mini movie that plays throughout the, the documentary. So they're talking about one big issue for a while in the documentary, and then they'll cut away for a two minute scene uh, following the story of this family, particularly this kid and his, and his and his sister in high school. Right. And the effect social media is having on them, particularly the element that they were just talking about in the documentary. So they talk about some of the documentary and then they do the scripted thing about this kid and his family and how social media is starting to affect this kid. Then they get back to the documentary for a bunch. Then they do another little segment of that scripted part, blah, blah, blah. And I got to say this, while I thought the, the inner cutting of documentary with scripted stuff to illustrate what they were saying in the documentary was very creative and, and, um, and really a, a neat use of the medium. It also gets very unnecessarily melodramatic to the point that when it started, it was okay. But as the movie progressed, the more and more they cut to the, to the scripted narrative part, I started rolling my eyes. I mean, it was so melodramatic and so much hyperbole in it that it was just hard to take it seriously. And I would I just found myself whenever they cut to that, the cutaway scripted narrative, I was just kept looking at my watch and waiting for them to come back to the documentary part. The documentary part is fascinating. The scripted stuff, not so much, but still overall, I would say absolutely watch it. I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was very well done. All right. Next up, Captain Blue Pants writes, um, Culturally, Back to the Future Part 2 was the one that everyone quotes and that drove the cult-like subculture. I'm not sure I agree with that. Uh, example, when Nike recreates those shoes, they sold for thousands. The sports almanac is iconic and hoverboards. Not the better film, but the more memorable. I don't know that I agree with that. I don't know that I agree with that. Now, those elements that you just brought up certainly um, are are iconic. Yes. But I don't know that you, this is interesting. Rob and I have been talking a lot about the back to the future trilogy and the fact that both Rob and I feel like when we think of back to the future, I don't think of the, of the trilogy. I just think of the movie. I think of the first movie. I like back to the future too. And I like back to the future three, but they're nowhere near on the iconic status to me as like, in terms of greatness and in terms of influence as that first back to the future movie. And so when people like Rob and myself think back to the future, we don't think about the trilogy. Unlike me, like when I think of star Wars, I think of the original trilogy. I think of, you know, new hope empire return of the Jedi. But when I think of back to the future, I just think of the first one. Yeah. The hoverboards, the Nike shoes, that's all true, but I don't think it's really an indicator. I could be wrong about that, by the way. But I think my initial thought is, I don't know if that's an actual indicator of one being more iconic. I, I really don't. I So I'm going to disagree with you on that, but I'd be interested to hear what other people have to say about that. So if you have a thought on that, guys, jump down to the comment section below uh, and leave your thoughts there. It's an interesting thing to br br bring up, uh, Blue Pants. All right, let's move on. Next up is Tony Rodriguez, who writes, movie theater experience. In 1999, in the army in Germany, some friends take me to what looked like a huge fancy two-floor warehouse. Inside, one cafe, three clubs, 
two themed bars and two restaurants and a second floor 12 theater movie theater star wars episode one i was gonna say that's the year of star wars episode one best night out ever you know what i'm so glad you brought that up tony because i have really been getting into the multi-experience movie going night for example there is uh, a number of AMC theaters are dine-in theaters now, right? It provides you with a multiple tiered experience. You go there, there's a bar. I don't drink, but most people I hang out with do drink. So you, you, there's usually a bar in these movie theaters now. You go hang out in the bar for a bit. Then you go into these fully reclining seats with a full menu and you order dinner to come to your thing. Full experience. There's an iPick theater in Pasadena that I love. So you go to this iPick theater and you, it's not like a traditional theater. Like it's this little entryway with one person taking your ticket and then you go in and it's like, it's the best way I can describe it. It's not 20s themed, but it's like a 1920s speakeasy, right? You go into it. It's this gorgeous lounge with bookshelves with many, in Ron Burgundy's word, leather bound books and a pool table and, and a bar. And it's just... It just feels like a completely cool place to hang out. And so Ann and I would go there and we'd hang out there and had a really good time. And then you go through one of the doors that takes you into the theater. That's got a fully stretched out like sofa kind of seat where you can order drinks, multi experience things. One of my favorite theaters ever was in Canada. Cineplex uh, had these things called Silver Cities. And you go in and they were huge and they'd have arcades in them and they'd have these, you know, sensory experiences like a giant dragon on the ceiling with like a, a, a top gun F-14 Tomcat hanging on the ceiling and blah, with the games and all that kind of stuff, multi experiences, multi experience nights out, right? And so what you're ex explaining to me sounds really fun and really cool. And I'm glad you had that night. And I, I love having those experiences. And I, I think movie theaters are going to move more and more towards those where the movie part is just one part of the experience of your night out. And uh, we'll see how it goes. All right. Next up, the Wakandan Forever writes, they did the mash, the monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. It caught on in a flash. They did the monster mash. Happy Halloween. Yeah. Ann and I had a very different Halloween last night. Uh, we both, we got dressed up in, in a couple of costumes, very simple things, but just basically hung out at Anne's, Anne's mom place with a couple of friends and Ray and, uh, and my, my buddy Ryan, we just hung out there. We did buy Halloween candy for any kids that came along because in Riverside County, it, you were allowed to go out trick or treating in LA County. You were not, but literally nobody came to the door, which was actually really encouraging for me that people were being smart and not taking their kid door to door to door with almost a hundred different people. I thought was, that was good on them for doing that. But uh, we watched the UFC fights, watched Anderson Silva's last, last fight, uh, watched a little football. It was a very, very different Halloween, but I hope you all had an enjoyable Halloween, whatever it is you ended up doing with it. All right, let's move on here. Uh, next up is Chip Chapman, who writes, John, I'm a 70-year-old guy who still has his sense of wonder and has been watching you since the AMC days. Thank you so much for that, Chip. I appreciate that, man. I'm very pleased The Trial of the Chicago 7 is our mutual favorite film of 2020. I lived those times, and I'm proud of you. Man of Steel does rock. Yeah, and I, I am so with you on that, Chip. I, I mean, whenever there's a Netflix original movie, 
it's always a bit of a coin toss. Well, it's less than a coin toss, to be honest. Most Netflix original movies are terrible. But every once in a while, they'll put out a gem. Uh, I loved Old Guard, The Irishman. And so when we get a movie like Trial of the Chicago 7 coming out, I mean, it looks good. It's got a great cast. It's got a terrific director who's one of the maybe one of the greatest screenwriters of all time. But it is a Netflix original movie. And 9.8 times out of 10, that ends up being really bad. Fortunately, I was extremely pleasantly surprised to go into the film, watch it, and it ended up being my number one favorite film of the year. Now, granted, you got to put you got to put a little asterisk beside that because it's been a very off year. But still, it is a fabulous, fabulous movie. I enjoyed it so much, and I did not live through those times. Um, that was before my time, but it was a fabulous, fabulous, fabulous movie. So good. My number one film up to that point was. Uh, the Englishman. I love the Englishman. And so getting into this, uh, was really, actually, let me just bring up something here. Um, uh, uh, also, let me just check this out. I just want to make sure I'm getting this right. Um, who was the guy again? Who, hold on a second. Let me, let me just bring this up here. Okay, so uh, the one I'm thinking of is, because I got a feeling I'm misquoting the name of the movie, The Gentleman. I kept seeing The Englishman. The Gentleman. Sorry. The Gentleman was my favorite movie of the year. I knew, I, I, I said The Englishman. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. That wasn't the name of the movie. And I had to go and look that up. The Gentleman. The Gentleman was my favorite movie of the year. Uh, and I'm glad I was able to pull this up here now. That was my favorite movie of the year. It's got one of my favorite directors, has an incredible cast. It's absolutely fantastic. I love The Gentleman. Absolutely love it. And it was starting to look like it was just going to end up as my favorite film of the year by the end of the year. And then Trial of the Chicago 7 came along. And man, I tell you, I, I just love that movie. I love that movie so much. And I'm glad you got to live. And I'm glad. I, I mean, I really kind of envy the fact that you get to watch it, the movie, having lived through that experience. So that's pretty cool. So thanks for writing that in, Chip. All right. Let's move on here. Next up, Kevin Rubio, our friend Kevin Rubio, of course, the creator of the greatest fan film of all time, Troops. Uh, Kevin Rubio writes, John Ann, a bit of self-promotion, but if you want to know how Boba Fett survived, just read Return of Tag and Bink Special Edition, available at Marvel.com, and there are literally a million guys in the galaxy with that face. Love you both. So for those of you who don't know, so my friend Kevin Rubio. He also writes, I mean, he does a lot of stuff. He writes comics. He, he, he's a show creator, all this kind of stuff. He's very, very active. But it, I don't know if you guys have heard, but there are these characters in Star Wars called Tag and Bink, right? Kevin, I believe, created these characters. And he also wrote some wrote the comic series of them. If I'm remembering it correctly, there was a Tag and Bink special where it revolves around Return of the Jedi, where Tag and Bink, these two characters, they're, they're rebel characters, but they're undercover as Imperial officers. And they're actually working behind the scenes and helping arrange the rescue of Han Solo from Boba Fett and uh, Jabba the Hutt. And what happens is before the big fight over the Sarlacc pit happens, Return of the Jedi, 
Boba Fett had thrown, this is before that, that, that battle happened. Boba Fett had thrown Tag and Bink into the Sarlacc pit, but they were able to hang on and not go all the way in the pit, but nobody knew that. So then you fast forward a bit. And when, uh, if I'm remembering this right, when Boba Fett goes, gets knocked down into the pit, he doesn't go all the way down either. And Boba Fett, Tag and Bink all get out of the Sarlacc pit later on. So if they consider that canon, and I had totally forgotten about this because that was actually a long time ago that came out. But if it was actually considered canon, there's your explanation about how Boba Fett got out of the pit of Carcoon uh, and got away from the Sarlacc. That's how they did it. So uh, thanks for reminding me about it. And again, if you guys have never looked up Tag and Bink and you're Star Wars fans, definitely go out and look up Kevin's work on Tag and Bink. All right, let's move on here. Uh, uh, Maximus Tiberius wrote in, Got some serious fistful of dollars and easy rider vibes as Mandalorian rolled into town on the speeder bike and cruised across the sand with the marshal. Listen, I'm telling you what, one of the reasons I loved that, if not the main reason I loved that first episode of the new season of Mandalorian is because John Favreau always said this is supposed to be a Western about a gunslinger out on the wild frontier. I was a little bit nervous that going into season two, they may stray away from that. But they didn't. John Favreau directs the the pilot episode of uh, the first episode of season two, and he doubles down on that whole Western motif and everything about that episode screamed old style Western. And I loved it and I ate it up. And you are absolutely right, Maximus. I totally got that sense the whole way through myself. And I love that they did it. And I'm glad you appreciated it, too. All right. Next up. Connor uh, DeRoyne writes and, and tipped in $20. Thank you, Connor, for supporting the channel on that level, man. I appreciate that. Uh, hey, John, this episode of Mando was the quintessential Western. It absolutely was right down to the this town ain't big enough for the two of us vibe. Piggybacking off that. Do you think that Boba and Mando will have some sort of rivalry? Thanks. I actually don't. I actually don't. I don't think we're going to see a lot of Boba Fett in this season. To be honest, and I know certain things about this season of The Mandalorian, but I don't know how much, if at all, we're going to see Boba Fett again this season. Mm. Let me be clear. I'm not saying he's not appearing in the rest of the season. I'm saying I don't know, and I'm not sure that he will. If you really look at how Mandalorian, other than Gina Carano and Carl Weathers' characters, they, the people Mando comes across then kind of disappear, maybe pop up again at some point later, and maybe Boba Fett will, but I'm not sure that he will. So I don't know. There are some people that are already theorizing that by episode three, it's going to be Mandalorian and Boba Fett, and, and Boba Fett's going to be in all the rest of the episodes, and I, I don't think he will. He might make another appearance this season, and I'm not sure that he will. That might be all that we get for this season. So I'm not sure. So I... Look, I, all I'll go is as far as what do I think is going to happen this season. Do I think Mando and Boba are going to develop a rivalry this season? I don't. Who knows what will happen later on, but I don't. But I don't know that for a fact. That's just what I think. It's not what I know. So let's be very clear on that. But you're absolutely right, man. It was a, it was everything about this episode was quintessential Western. I loved it for that reason. So I'm glad you did too, man. All right, next up. And this is our last question of the day, and then we're all caught up. This is Tony Rodriguez who writes, my theory for season three, oh, for season three, 
is Mandalorian gets the child home with Boba's help through season two. Then, since the issue with Pedro Pascal and the helmet, there by the way, there is no issue. Don't believe any of that crap. Um, helmet, season three continues just with Boba Fett. And remember, it's called The Mandalorian. Boba is, is, and so it goes on without him alone. Well, there's a couple of problems with that, Tony. Number one, the name of the show is not Mandalorian. The name of the show is The Mandalorian. This show is about Mando, right? It's not about any random Mandalorian that'll just come in and out. It's, the show isn't called Mandalorian. It's called The Mandalorian. It's about him, period. Um, also, there's a lot of debate about whether Boba Fett is actually a Mandalorian. I, and I've had this debates, these debates, and there are very clear reasons why I believe he is truly Mandalorian. There are some arguments to be made against him being that, so I'm not sure about that. But no, I don't think they're magically going to take it and then revolve the series around Morrison. I don't think they're going to do that. This show is about Mando and don't believe any of that crap about Pedro Pascal and the stupid rumor that he he stormed off set and he didn't finish out the season. That's That didn't happen. That didn't happen. I'm not saying there wasn't any issues or there wasn't whatever, but the way it was described and everything, don't believe it for a second. Don't believe that for a second. Anyway, guys. That'll do it for this installment of our companion videos. We are now all caught up on the question you guys had. Don't forget to join us again on Monday for the newest episode of the John Campia show. Robert will be here. We're obviously going to talk about a number of things, including, of course, the passing of Sean Connery. Make sure you join us for that. And guys, if you haven't done so already, why don't you take a second, go and click on that subscribe button. Keep up to date on everything that we got going on here on the channel. Like I said, we put in like six to eight hours of prep a day on those shows. So a subscribe click on that would be absolutely fantastic. Uh, guys, don't forget, do the main important things. Stay smart, stay safe, take care of yourselves, and please take care of the people around you. That'll do it for me for now, guys. Thanks a lot for being here. My name's John Campia, and until next time, my friends, bye-bye.